Thanks for tuning into localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson, and you're listening to Government Compliance where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. And today we have our expert, Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. We wanted to talk with you because you recently wrote an article about similarly situated relating to compensation. Can you start us off by sharing why this is an important topic to our federal contractors? Oh, certainly. The federal contractors have been the focus of efforts by the federal government to address the issue of equal pay, especially equal pay for women, but it covers equal pay for any of the groups that are protected by OFCCP. And so for a contractor who's trying to be compliant, in order for them to know whether or not they're discriminating with respect to pay, they have to understand who should be expected to have the same or virtually the same pay. Because otherwise, they don't know how to, you know, what's the yardstick? They don't know how to compare the people's pay you know, to which of the employees. So you may have somebody that's working in accounting, somebody working in legal. You know, do you compare the two of them because they start off the same salary or are the different professions the reason why we can't compare them? Or you may have somebody who's working night shifts and they get a night differential, but if you don't know who's similarly situated, you may compare them to someone only working in the daytime. And so then you'd be comparing the wrong people. So if you want to be able to make actual decisions about whether or not pay looks good, looks like it's fair, or whether pay looks like it's got a potential discrimination problem, you have to have some kind of a grasp on who is similarly situated, who should be compared to uh, you know, the other person in order to see whether or not to pay, who knows where it should be. And, and this compensation analysis, it begins with some sort of snapshot of data looking for or examining disparities. Can you expound on what this data might include? The reason I call it a snapshot, and other people have called it a snapshot, is because the agency basically finds a date, a a, a moment in time, and gets pay data for your enterprise as of that date. So you you don't have, say, an ongoing trend of every every pay adjustment that's been made over a period of years. You have what the pay looked like on the day the data was downloaded. So that's why it's a snapshot. It's like, you know, you're playing a game. We don't see the whole game. We just see a snapshot at one point in the game. So you have to tell from that snapshot what was going on in the rest of the game. So the, sure. uh, the, the snapshot, there may be any number of reasons for what you're seeing in the snapshot, but the agency doesn't see the whole game, so they have to discern from the snapshot what the rest of the pay situation is like. Okay. You know, that, I think, is an important thing for contractors to know because the only people that can explain the snapshot were the people who were actually in the game. I see. And the contractors are the ones in the game because they're paying these people from day to day. They're making pay decisions. OF isn't in the game. They just showed up and looked at your snapshot. Okay. So what sort of factors are included in this snapshot? You know, things like skills. What, what, are, what are they sort of looking at? Well, see, this is, what, this is one of the things that's interesting. They, there are certain things that they assume are associated with pay because traditionally they, they, there have been some link, like education, experience, skills, those kinds of things. Okay. Seniority, how long you've been with the company. All of those kinds of things tend to be standards that they'll put, they'll put into their equations. There may be other things because the company, because companies in the game, they may have other things that they say are 
why pay is set the way that it is. And so if they communicate that to the agency, the agency will try to put those things in the equation. Uh, But that still doesn't give you everything that influences pay. It just gives you the things that are traditionally thought to influence pay or things that the company assumes influences its pay. And then the analysis is a regression. So it's moving, it's going backwards and and that's sort of how they get it going or? Now what they do when they, when they look at it, what they try to do with a regression is that they'll take the pay and they'll they'll see if there are dis, you know differences in pay and try to account in the equation for all the things that might account for those differences other than discrimination. So, for example, they may take into account how many years of schooling someone has, or they may take into account how many you know how much knife experience if it happens to be a job called for that. They'll take into account the things, the factors that they have to see if all those factors, if put into the equation, will eliminate any statistically significant disparity. So they're, it's not like regression isn't going back in time. It's, it's like I want to back out everything that would influence pay that's not discrimination and whatever is left, if it's statistically if it's still a statistically significant disparity, then I'm going to attribute that remaining unexplained disparity to discrimination. Okay. So they're just trying, they're trying to back out these other reasons. But I if see. they don't have all the other reasons, then you can come to a wrong conclusion. Well, you also talk about compensation history. Now, what is OFCCP looking at when they're analyzing compensation history? Can you give us some examples? My objective in the article with the, with the example uh, is that when we talk about backing things out, it's only if, if you capture that, you know, that influence to be able to put it in the equation, can you back it out? And there are a lot of things that just don't lend themselves to being captured in a regression. And so the example that I used uh, was of two people who come in, and I used a man and a woman just for the sake of the example. They come in to an enterprise. They have the same kind of job. They get paid, you know, comparable wages when they start. They're working under the same supervisor. At some point in my hypothetical situation, the man becomes aware that there's another supervisor who does this kind of work in a different part of the country who pays more and makes that decision that he's going to go follow the money. The woman understands that there's this, uh, you know, about, he knows about the, uh, the opportunity that there's other uh, supervisors who pay more, but she doesn't want to relocate, so she stays where she is. Over time, his salary does accelerate like he thought it would by being under the generous supervisor. He gets $2,000 more a year now than she does. At some point, the company brings the two of them together because they're consolidating uh, you know, operations, put them under yet another supervisor who doesn't make any pay adjustment. But now you've got the two, of the pe- two people who came in at the same time same amount of experience, doing the same job, but now he's making $2,000 more than she is. If a snapshot is taken on, the, on a, a day when they're working under that last supervisor who made no pay decisions, you're going to see two people who came in about the same time with about the same experience, doing the same job, who are getting paid differently, and the woman's getting paid less, and that's going to be a huge red flag for the agency. But what the agency doesn't see is how the decisions that that woman made about whether or not to relocate impacted her pay. That there's, That's not... That's not really in the equation. And the company may not even know. She may not have announced to everybody, well, you know, I, I, I knew about it, but I decided not to go sure. there. So this is what one of the things I think contractors need to be aware of, as well as I think the agency needs to acknowledge, is that there, there are sometimes decisions, and I expect it's, it's fairly common. People make decisions about where to work and when to work and whether money is the most important factor or not in, their, in making decisions about their career. So there may be any number of reasons why a person decides, well, I know I could make more money if I was willing to relocate, but I want to stay where I am for any number of reasons, or I like the people that I'm working with, and that's more important to me than making money, or that that other supervisor might be just a difficult 
personality and I really like my own supervisor. So although he pays more, it's not worth it. I mean, there's all kinds of calculations that employees make in their own minds about whether or not they're going to follow money. They're not always motivated to go where they can get the most money in the the company. But if Snapshot happens, there's no way for the agency to have any idea how this came to be. They're just going to look to see, well, when did they start? What was their education? What's their experience? What do their job descriptions look like? And in this scenario, none of that's going to really tell them that these two aren't similarly situated to each other. Because the way I'm looking at this, if you have the first less generous supervisor, if, as long as that less generous supervisor was less generous to everybody, sure. and in the, my hypothetical, the supervisor was, then they didn't discriminate. They, their people just earn less, but all of them are being treated fairly. So more generous supervisor could also be fair. His people earn a lot, but everybody earns a lot. So if you looked at other people, like instead of comparing the man to the woman who was in the, under the less generous supervisor, if you compared him to his coworkers under the more generous supervisor, all of them are doing fine in terms of fairness and pay. It's when you bring the two of them together. So if you're, even if you're auditing, you're not gonna, they're not going to find a problem in the, the unit that's supervised by the less generous person or the unit that's supervised by the more generous person. So in this situation that I posit, no one actually discriminated based on pay. Right. You just put together two people and your mechanism for examining pay doesn't account for the fact that different types of decisions were made. The person had a fair opportunity to get more. She just chose something else. Right. But she won't even be in this discussion. They'll look at a bunch of figures. They'll, you know, do some interviews, but they probably won't get to this kind of situation. And that's something I think that contractors have to understand is that you can try, and I give some suggestions of ways that you can try to, you know, make the appearance of being similarly situated not be a false one. But sometimes it just might be. And I know there are a lot of debates about, you know, is there really a pay gap? And a lot of the people who argue that there isn't say, well, it's all these choices that people make. But then on the other side, people say, well, no, 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 it's this, there's this pay gap. The fact of the matter is, from my perspective, people do make choices, but some of it is probably also discrimination. It's just that the mechanisms for detecting whether compensation is fair really don't account for the fact that individual choices really do make a difference. Right. You know, so unless you chose to have fewer hours or something really obvious like that, Choosing to not relocate is probably not going to be a factor when, you know, you're now, at the time the snapshot is taken, you're both working in the same place in the same city under the same supervisor. Right. So it just, it doesn't even pick that other, the other scenarios up. So that's one of the things that is kind of outside of the power of, of what we right now have to examine pay is to pick up all those moments in time when you made decisions that may have dampened your ability to earn but they, you knew that when you made those decisions. So, and, and you said you offered, you know, different ideas of what contractors can do to help this situation. You know, what should they be doing to mitigate this sort of possibly being cited just based on that snapshot? Well, the best thing they can do, I don't, there's some things they're just not going to be able to catch, you know, like, like these kinds of individual decisions. Right. But some things they can do to make life better for them when they go to the agency. Because the agency doesn't work for the contractor. The agency is coming at the contractor as an outsider. So when the data gets presented, it's presented basically the way the contractors decided to present it to the agency. And those decisions that are made can either make people look like they all are the same, or they can make people look like there are distinctions here that you need to pay attention to. And one of the, the first places that you can look is how do you do the titles for the jobs? You know, the title of the job, you know, once they get past the job group, they usually work their way down the titles when they're starting to examine okay. who should be paid 
you know, who, you know, who should be considered in an equation examining for discrimination in pay. If you have a title and you put a lot of people under that title and you're going to want to later on distinguish those people because you're going to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, they shouldn't all be viewed as, as people who should be earning the same, then you, you're basically building a job for yourself by lumping them all together under the title. Now you've created the impression that they're the same because they have the same job title, and maybe they're in the same department, and you're going to have to work to change the impression that you could have avoided in the first place. How could you avoid it? One way to avoid it is to look at your workers who should be lumped together for purposes of pay and other things. If you have, that's the example I give is if, if you maybe pay more for people with more experience and less for people with less experience, then maybe you want to categorize. I give an example of accountants. You know, instead of having a, a big job group called accountants and you throw everybody in there that does accounting, and then you later on try to separate, you know, accountants out in the mind of the agency, if you distinguish them up front, you have accountant one, accountant two, accountant three, then, you know, and you tell them that, you know, these levels are based on whatever the factors are, sure. experience or something else, then at least from the get-go, the agency is being oriented to distinguish between the accountants on your payroll. Whereas if you give them one big old title... You've got to work at, at, at creating a, you know, changing that first impression. And like they always say, you never have a second chance to make a first impression. Right. You're making a first impression with your initial submission. And you start to lead the agency's thinking in the direction of either all these people are the same or there are some distinctions here that are meaningful and are probably meaningful with respect to pay. And so one of the things I think that contractors can readily do, and, and many of them already do, is to separate out by titles. But not everybody does that, and not everybody makes the distinctions that they're going to want to make when they defend their pay systems. So looking at it from that perspective, you know, go through and look at what your titles are. Are the people in that title people who really are similar enough that if they were to examine the pay of the, of the people in that title, you would feel like that's a proper examination of whether or not there's discrimination. So I think that's something that companies can do. I mean, they may make some distinctions, but maybe their distinctions aren't refined enough. The, uh, the other caveat to that, though, is that you, I've had contractors in, in uh, my career try to tell me why every single job in my enterprise is distinct and different. Sure. So you basically <laughs> cannot examine me for pay. They, they've you got know. separate titles for every, for every employee. <laughs> yeah, that, that looks bogus. Okay, from okay. the get-go, I'm <laughs> Don't already do that, thinking then. <laughs> you're hiding something. Don't be doing that. But if you make some meaningful distinctions and they match up with, you know, some, some factor that makes sense to the person, you know, looking in from outside, then I think it ha really does influence whether or not you have created something, an impression you have to overcome, or whether you've already started the agency thinking in the proper way about how your pay systems are structured. All right. So then with that being said, we, we, we want separate titles if there's different responsibilities, but we don't want separate titles for each employee. But with that goes along job descriptions, right? So how important yeah. is it for those descriptions to also be a little bit different if the pay is going to be different? Well, yes, I do. I think it's it, it, Kind of as a package, because what are they going to look at to see whether or not these distinctions you're introducing to them are legit? They're going to say, well, let's see what their position descriptions look at. Let's look at how they, you know, how they do pay these people. So let's say you have position description and position descriptions are, I've seen ones, it's like they wrote it years ago and no one's really visited it in a long time. So there may be some big difference between sure. what the person's doing from today to day and what their position description said. Or you've got somebody who they got a position description and they have way too many people with these really generic position descriptions. What that does is when the, when the compliance officer goes to talk to, say, the immediate supervisor, and they're trying to say, well, you know, this person over here does all these complicated things, which justifies why they're getting paid the way that they are. 
whereas this other person is not, you know, they're, they're not doing such complicated things. So then they look at the position description, and it looks from the position description like they're doing the same thing. So now you've basically created another impression you want to overcome because you started off the agency's thinking, okay, well, there's some meaningful distinction here, but then it's undermined by your position description because you haven't reflected that in your position description. It's much more helpful to the contractor if after the agency talks to the person who's in charge of maybe, you know, supervising this individual, if when they go to look at the position descriptions, they match up with what the person would have told them about how complex this job is and how it's distinct from this other job. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So you got to, you know, you, you have to make sure, at least I think it's very helpful for you if you make sure that the pieces of this puzzle are put together in a way that, that makes sense and, and appears to be coherent. And one of the reasons these things get a little separated out sometimes, I think, is because you may have different people doing different jobs. The person doing the position description is probably not the person who's doing the day-to-day work, you know, who's supervising the day-to-day work. Then you may have the pay people who are saying, okay, well, this is the category and this is the market for that category. But then maybe their category is a little overbroad. Perhaps they're looking more generic, like, you know, with the position description. They might have been given the position description to go look for the pay amount that it should be. Then they're finding the pay uh, based on something generic, but then when we get to the individual, the supervisor's giving this person more money or it's adding bonuses or whatever to it, which all is going to be looked at in the compensation arena, to see, you know, that's supposed to reflect what they're actually doing from day to day. So again, you have people who may not be coordinating the image that they're presenting to the agency because they got one piece of the puzzle and they did what they're supposed to do with that, but they haven't really linked it back to, is this really what this person does? Is the pay really based on these things in the position description that I'm now using to to get the market rate? Or is there something that should have been in that position description that would have led me perhaps to have elected a different level of pay? Coordinate and tailor. You got to make sure these things all kind of work together. All right. Keep them updated and make them congruent. It helps. (laughs) (laughs) It does help if you're, you know, if your support data uh, matches the testimony that the agency receives. Absolutely. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about pay policies. How can setting these up help contractors? Well, I think pay policies help because it, it gives, first of all, it gives the appearance of objectivity. I didn't just make this pay up when you showed up. I had a scheme for pay. I had a philosophy around pay. I had a mechanism. So this is not because you're a man or a woman. It's because you happen to fit here in my pay policy, which I made up before I even knew who was going to be in these jobs. So, you, you know, you look objective if you have some kind of pay policy. The example I give is in, in collective bargaining agreements, the agency rarely looks hard at the pay that you know, this part of a collective bargaining agreement. And a lot of the reason why is because it's already set out what people in this particular category are going to get, how their raises are going to be determined and all of that kind of thing. So it, it looks objective from the get-go. So it, it makes the agency less concerned that there's going to be, uh, that there's not going to be a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for any differences that they see. So if you are, even if you don't have a, a, a collective bargaining agreement, if you have some kind of formal pay process where you can say, here are the criteria that you have to meet in order to warrant this level of pay. You know, here's how we set our bonus structure. Here's how we set whatever other monetary benefits go along, like who gets overtime and that kind of thing. If it's already determined and we can see that you follow it, it was set up in a non-discriminatory way, you know, unless they can show some kind of disparate impact, which, you know, I think is probably less less likely to happen if you if you know thought this thing through up the front end it does give that sense of you know there's some organization to it and for the company by setting these criteria you're basically setting out or thinking through 
who is going to be similarly situated, say, with respect to how their pay gets set. So anybody with, you know, this number of years experience, this amount of education or whatever, this is how we're going to calculate their pay. Then the next person comes in the door, you don't have to say, well, okay, you know, this person reminds me of myself when I was young, so I'm going to set their pay up here, or they've got a family to support them, I'll set their pay over here. It gives them, you know, a, a neutral way to set, you know, what the pay is going to be for the job. So I think that's very helpful when the company uh, is, you know, in an audit situation, they can point to their policy, and especially if they follow it. Because <laughs> right. don't point to a policy if you don't do none of that stuff. Set so it up, but follow policy. it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you set it up, follow it, because it's gonna it's gonna do you a favor by making you look objective. But on the other hand, it is gonna set out criteria that you say if you meet this, you should have gotten the pay raise. Right. So if we find somebody who didn't get the pay raise and they met it then you basically created your, you know, another problem for yourself. Sure. So if you set the criteria, it needs to be set up thoughtfully and in a way that you can actually manage and monitor so you're carrying it out. Plus, policies give you a chance to once again restate that you're committed to fair pay practices. All right. Well, what about acquisitions? How can this potentially muddy the waters for contractors? With acquisitions, you're buying someone else's company and possibly their problems. So what, when you buy that company, you, a lot of times they'll bring people in. They've already got a pay system set up based on whatever mechanisms that they use. Quite often, the acquiring company has a different and not, not necessarily that compatible a pay system. So you may have people who had same title and same kind of jobs in the company you're acquiring who get paid on a different scale than the people that are working for you. So if you take, say, a man and a woman, and the woman is coming from the acquired company, and the man was already working for you, and it looks like the woman is being paid less doing the same job, if there's no way for the agency to tell this is the product of the acquisition and, and you're working to integrate these systems, then they're going to look at it and get the impression there's probably a problem here. Let me look closer. You want to create the impression there's no problem here. Because okay. you, you, just, you, know, you don't want to have to overcome. The, the, whole, the whole thing here is you don't want to create impressions you subsequently have to overcome. One of the ways to avoid having that problem is if you keep distinct and make it very clear who came through the acquisition and who was already working here, especially if, if you haven't yet completely and totally integrated that new group of people and their, their pay that was born out of their pay system into your own. Because I've seen people who had like no cause for years, but every time you investigate and they're fine. Then they buy a company and they're looking at the financials, but they may not be looking at the EEO as hard. Sure. So when they come on board, now the HR and EEO people have to figure out how do I integrate these people in? I can't just give them this massive bump in pay. I've got to find a way to, you know, to work this out so we can gradually merge these two systems. And it may take some time. And in that time period, you really need to be able to separate them out. Now, you, you could give some kind of code in the system or some kind of way that you can easily you know, bring these people together and run an analysis because you have to make sure that their, their pay is fair relative to other people who also were acquired and then were in their job. So basically people who are similarly situated because they came from the acquiring company, you want to be able to analyze that separately from your own analysis of the, you know, your onboard employees. And the reason for that is you may, in fact, have bought a discrimination problem, sure. but you want to basically isolate it and inoculate it. So if you can run the pay of the people coming in to make sure the pay, their pay was fair vis-a-vis one another, then when you go to integrate them into your system, at least you know they came from a system that didn't already have discrimination in it that caused them to have the pay that they currently have. On the other hand, if there is discrimination in their system, it kind of isolates the problem to, well, this is the problem. It wasn't our problem. It was the company we just bought problem. They didn't cure it before we bought these, you know, the company. But here's where the remedy needs to be. Okay. And you, then you kind of 
focus the agency to remedy the discrimination that might have been in the acquired company, but not in yours. Otherwise, you know, everybody in that job group, which may include people that were already working for you who didn't have the problem, could look like they're also victims. So these are things that help to keep it from, you know, creating false positives or or overstating the size of the affected class. If you can somehow keep track that these people came through our acquisition of company B over there, we're running their pay. They had a little problem, say, in, you know, one of the job titles in company B. We've addressed that. Here's how we did it. That's a stronger posture with the agency than just bringing all those people in. And now they've skewed your own, your your, uh, uh, comparable job title. And, And really your people never were touched. You know, it's kind of a variation on the, you know, we had a generous supervisor and a not generous supervisor. Right. When you're bringing people together whose pay history is the product of, you know, somebody else's sets of decisions, it may look like, you know, there was some coherent thing that affected everybody, but really they didn't because for a long time they weren't even together. So somehow annotate that there, that, you know, there might be some discrepancies, but also have some sort of plan on how you're going to fix that. Yeah, I think both of those are important. There ought to be some way. You may not be able to have a totally parallel system, but somehow make it so that you could easily pull and isolate for analysis the people that came through your acquisition that you're still trying to integrate into your pay system from the people that you have. And then, you know, analyze their pay separately and then analyze your in-house pay, as you always have to do separately to make sure that there's no problem. And then when you bring them together, be mindful of what that's going to look like. Is it, you know, is there a reason why someone would be, appear to be doing the same work with the same level of experience, et cetera, and wouldn't have the same pay and make sure that they know that? Because sometimes, you know, we've had situations when, when we're doing analyses, the person who made these decisions is gone. And in comp, there's so many people that are involved in making the decision. And I think that's the biggest challenge with similarly situated. You have a lot of different people who have set your pay both before you showed up to the company and then once you got in the company. And then there are outside influences like bringing in acquisitions. So you've got right. a, a lot of factors that could be re- the reason why. And not all of them wind up you know, accurately captured in a regression. So you know, some of this stuff, if you can make sure you don't create a misimpression, maybe the equation won't put those people together to begin with. So any final thoughts, Sandy, on what contractors should do to help them prepare properly for, uh, you know, compensation? Well, I think what, what one of the things that they really do need to do is to make sure that they aren't creating an impression that people should be paid the same who really shouldn't, that they understand as best you know, as you can, what exactly their pay policies are. So it's not ad hoc and they're not at a loss or you don't have a, you know, a supervisor saying this affects paying somebody else saying that, oh, that has nothing to do with pay. So you need to have a coherent policy. It needs to be communicated and executed in a way that you can explain and that doesn't create a discrimination problem. And I think when you do something, you do bring an outside force in, you bring on employees that had different pay scales somewhere else or something like that with an acquisition, being able to keep track of who they are at least as long as they might integrating them into your system completely might create a misimpression. So you're going to eventually migrate them to your system. But there is this period of time when you're trying to affect that. I think you should really make sure that you can explain to the agency why these people should be looked at, you know, as a separate group from the people that are working for your company. So you think about those things as you're going forward and also, you know, make sure that you're known as a company who cares about making sure pay is fairly distributed in your company. Well, thank you, Sandy. We appreciate your thoughts about this topic. And this does it for today's show, Government Compliance. Continue listening to localjobnetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, suggestions, or questions, 
email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. I'm Jacqueline Peterson for LJN Radio, and thanks for listening.